you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 73 for our Old Testament Scripture reading. How easy it is uh, to be discouraged when we look around us and we see uh, those who are reveling in the treasures of this present life. It can be very confusing even as the psalmist here looks and sees uh, those who are benefiting from so much worldly prosperity and, and, and it leads them to confusion as he considers what, where is my real treasure? Where is my ultimate hope? And that is the focus of this psalm, one that I think has significant import on our sermon text this evening or this morning. Psalm 73. It's a psalm of Asaph. He says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. So pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through their fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and they speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. They say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease they increase in riches. And all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I said I will speak in this way, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But... When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, until I went into the sanctuary of God, and it is then that I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, so Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Who do I have in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, and he is my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish, and you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God, I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I might tell of all 
your works. Now, if you'll turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew for our New Testament Scripture reading and our sermon text. Matthew chapter 6, we'll read verses 19 to 24. Matthew 6, verses 19 to 24. Do not, this is our Savior speaking, by the way. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, and so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. This is God's word. Let's go before the Lord uh, as we pray he, that He would help us to understand it. Uh, our gracious God and Father, so often we find our uh, thoughts and affections uh, uh, torn in so many different directions. Uh, we find ourselves distracted. Uh, this morning we pray that You would grant us clarity of thought as we come to Your Word and sit under it. We pray that you uh, would focus our thoughts and gaze on uh, your teaching, and so that you would prick our hearts and warm our affections, that we would be convicted of the ways in which we fall short and uh, cling to Christ, who is our all in all. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I remember when I was a kid, uh, at one point my grandparents uh, came down from North Carolina to visit, and uh, my grandfather was always uh, one who enjoyed uh, telling these kind of uh, really kind of over-the-top stories and things like that, and uh, one particular time where they were down to visit, he brought with him a, uh, if I recall correctly, a, a metal detector, and he was talking about, you know, Spanish uh, ships off the coast of Florida and how we should go out to the beach looking for buried treasure that might just be just under the surface of the sand, of course, where everybody has been going to the beach for years and years on end. We would go, and it's just an exciting thing. You don't really find much, just a couple of trinkets here and there, but uh, it's really the, the, the thought and the prospect, uh, uh, the idea of perhaps finding some type of buried treasure on the shore uh, lurking underneath the sand of those who had simply uh, passed over it time and time again. Of course, never found any treasure like that, and if I had, it wouldn't do much good because so often we find that whenever uh, the news does tell of someone finding some form of lost treasure that has washed up on the shore, it has been eaten away uh, by uh, time and rust and so many other things. Really, the question we have before us this morning is the question of what our ultimate treasure is. Where is it located? 
If we can ask ourselves this before we even begin uh, the text, because this is the, the direction that our Savior is bringing us to, we must ask ourselves, what is it that we value more than anything? When we are at home, and the anxieties and cares of this world are not pressing down upon us, and uh, those moments where we have a breather to think whatever it is that we want to think without any other cares or concerns, where is it that our thoughts gravitate? What is it that we contemplate in our spare time, however much or small that spare time might be? I want you to consider this. Whatever it is that your heart is fixed upon, have you ever considered what will be its fate one day? What will become of it 50 years from now, 100 years from now, centuries from now? Well, this morning our Savior calls us to consider these very things, life's greatest treasure. There's three things I'd like us to consider this morning. First, we need to consider the matter of the heart We'll see that here in verses 19 to 21. Secondly, we're going to consider the matter of the undivided heart in verses 22 to 23 as he speaks of the light. And then finally, we'll speak of the divided heart in verse 24 as Jesus speaks of one who is torn between two masters. So the heart, the undivided heart, and the divided heart all given as different uh, facets in a jewel to point us to what our ultimate treasure is. I think it's really significant that Jesus really does speak of the gospel uh, and of the things that he has come to provide his people as a real and lasting treasure. It's something that should not be overlooked. How many of us uh, come to the faith and have been raised in homes or attended churches where uh, the, the, those who are considered to be the most holy, the holiest and pious of the bunch were those with the, the biggest frowns on their faces, uh, the, the, the dourest of scowls. And yet we see over and over again in this sermon, Jesus repeatedly keeps speaking of our reward and our treasure as real things that we are to set our affections on. This is not some type of morose asceticism that is devoid of comfort or joy. Jesus speaks of there being a real treasure, of there being a real reward, and here he begins by telling us that our treasure is only going to be found in one of two places. It is either going to be found on earth or in heaven. There is no middle ground. The object of our affections are located in one of two spheres, the earthly or the heavenly. Over and over again, Scripture speaks of uh, the real value of the treasures of this passing age, and the answer is, ultimately, it is of little value. You read the author, uh, the preacher, of Ecclesiastes as his repeated refrain regards the fading ephemeral futility that all this world has to offer. Vanity, vanity, vanity. It is as you are striving after the wind. Be it through uh, the pursuit of fading philosophies, thinking that, oh, the greatest treasure one could possibly find in this world is the accumulation of knowledge 
as if winning uh, a round or a game of Jeopardy one night is one's ultimate pursuit, or the local trivia night at the local sports uh, bar. Others perhaps see their great treasure on earth as found in matters of self-indulgence, be it in pursuing those incessant pleasures, the projects and monuments of the self, the the acquisition of art collections, of music, of theater, the pursuit of of beauty. And yet over and over again, we're told how fleeting those things really are. I remember uh, once I was in seminary, I was invited to the home of someone who lived nearby. And he was a former video store owner. And we had a mutual love for old movies. And he invited me over to his house and uh, walk into his house. And his whole house was filled wall to wall with old VHS cassette tapes. And, and he looked at it as if it was a thing of pride. And I think most people wouldn't even be able to watch them because people are like, well, what's a VCR? It's these things that are just fading away, what was once a great treasure to him, something that he still took pride in, was becoming, even before our very eyes, obsolete. To be honest with you, when he kind of showed it to me, he had this kind of look like I, I should have been impressed. And, and I wasn't, I didn't know I was supposed to be, I wasn't trying to irritate him. But he became visibly angry that I did not take the same stock in his uh, the things that he really considered to be of immense value. Scriptures speak of those who pursue not just fading philosophies and self-indulgence, but wisdom. Uh, a, a wisdom that is not heavenly minded, but a wisdom that is really just focused on the course of this life. It, it's a, a form of wisdom that we, we would say might form a, a form of... Uh, uh, what we might call uh, vertical tunnel vision. You think of horse blinders on the eyes, think of the horse blinders on like this, where the person, all they could see is right in front of them, but they have no idea what's above them. Seeking financial stability, stocks and portfolios to ensure a future, future livelihood for themselves and for their progeny. Not necessarily a bad thing to be wise in uh, seeking the benefit of your family and kids. It's actually very wise. But if that is your ultimate aim, the scriptures are clear. It's futile. You set your hope and affections on things that have no lasting value. Overnight, these things, riches, uh, money, those things will be swept away. Just think about Germany at the end of the First World War. 1918, as the war comes to an end, you have these families who have had all this money in bank accounts, entire life savings for retirement, and they are bringing their money in wheelbarrows to the bank so they can use what used to be their life savings to buy a head of cabbage so they can eat that night because of the way in which the value of the German dollar had dropped almost overnight. You think of the U.S. stock market crash in 1929 where everything is lost in a moment. And so many on Wall Street looked and realized that everything that they had lived for had come to nothing. And so they thought their lives were worth nothing. You might find your treasure in your own work and career, in your profession and toil, of a particular relationship, the hope of a happy home life, the perfect marriage, or the honor roll children. Again, these are not necessarily bad things, but they are fleeting. None of us are promised any of these things. None of us are promised wealth and honor. Even those who get wealth and honor, they find it does not satisfy. 
was a famous Hollywood actor 20, 30 years ago. I won't say the name, but considered to be one of the wealthiest men in the U.S. And somebody once asked him, how much money do you have? His answer was, not enough. The riches can't satisfy. Everything can be easily lost or stolen. As our Savior says here, where moth can destroy, where rust or worm can consume and devour. I remember when I was in junior high, there was a kind of t-shirt. I don't know how much of a trend, if it was a local trend back in Florida, if it was kind of a a global t-shirt trend, but there are these t-shirts that were called the No Fear t-shirts. And one of the most popular t-shirts that you would see among uh, kids in school, I never had one uh, of these, but um, it, it said it would say something like this, a very kind of blunt, realistic worldview, but also so cynical, but also true. It says, he who dies with the most toys still dies. The Bible tells us that God has set eternity in men's hearts, and so how could the stuff of earth ever fill such a God-shaped hole? No one who receives these things will keep them forever. Thus, to set one's hope on these things is to cast your lot on a sinking ship. Imagine a man hauling all of his possessions aboard the Titanic in 1912. To see it all go down into the ocean, such is the fate of all who set their hope in earthly fame and fortune. Where is your heart set? Where are your affections to be found? Over and over again, we find in the Psalms this repeated refrain, this continued exhortation uh, calling us to to, to realign and reorient our straying and wandering affections, where even we as believers find our hearts so prone to wonder. Some trust in military strength that is found in horses and chariots. Some trust in gold and money. Some trust in pleasure, power, and fame. But the psalmist says, with the rest of the people of God, contrast to all these things, we will trust in the name of our God. Those earthly treasures that are faded and doomed to corruption and theft, where rust and moth and worm can devour. Contrast to these things, we find that there is another treasure that is immune to such fading and loss. It's what our Savior says here. Your treasures are either going to be on earth where they will be consumed and destroyed or your treasure can be in heaven. A treasure that cannot be corrupted. A treasure that is impregnable, not subject to theft or loss. As Peter writes to the church, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, where according to his great mercy he has caused us to be born again to this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. The very same treasure of which our Savior speaks here.
a treasure that is kept in heaven for us, that is guarded by God himself, where no strong man, no robber, no bandit can plunder. The good news of the gospel is that Christ has secured solid joys and lasting treasures for his people. The forgiveness of sins, reception into the family of God, the cleansing from shame, the end of loneliness and alienation, reconciliation and communion with God, even the death of death found in the death of Christ. And the future hope of a bodily resurrection from the dead. All of these treasures that await the unveiling of that heavenly kingdom that will appear on the day of our Savior's great return. We talk about keeping our heart in our chests. Well, here Jesus does the same thing, that where your treasure chest is, that's where your heart's going to be. If your precious treasure is safe and secure, so too will your heart. There's this scene in uh, one of the Sherlock Holmes stories where Sherlock Holmes is uh, looking for a stolen painting and he knows the person who has stolen it. He just has to figure out where she has hidden it. And so he sets the house on fire, at least claims that the house is set on fire. And as the warning comes to her that her house is on fire, she immediately looks in the direction of where she's hidden the painting. He knows where it is. Think about what happens when, when trouble strikes, when the very thing that you treasure most is on the line. All of a sudden, anxiety and worry begin to creep in and set in. Something that Jesus is going to address in the next passage that we'll look at next week, by the way. But it shows us that if our treasure is on uh, the verge of loss, if it is about to be stolen, if it's about to be corrupted, it leads us to worry and anxiety. But if our treasure is safe, then our heart is safe. Because where your treasure is, there also will your heart be. And what Christ has secured for his people is a treasure, an inheritance. It's not even something that we've earned. Therefore, it's not something that can be lost. And it's not something that can be stolen. And so this is something that brings great comfort and assurance in the midst of troubled times. No matter what happens in terms of earthly circumstances, you lose your job, family falls apart, get If you get a call from the doctor regarding an an ill-fated medical report, those solid joys and lasting treasures are still waiting in heaven for you. And they will not fade. They will not be stolen. Not even death can rob you of the joy that Christ has provided and secured for his people. That's why Solomon writes, uh, saying to the people of God, to guard your heart, to keep it with all vigilance, for from your heart flow the springs of life. If we know that our heart, or our tre- the treasures of our heart are kept safe, then we can rest secure. We will not have anxiety cloud and worry us. If the heart is to be kept, it's to remain undivided. And so here, our Savior shifts the imagery from the heart as the gate to the soul, as it were as he now speaks of the eyes as the gate to the body. 
just as the prospect of our uh, losing a treasure can lead to instability and worry. And Jesus says, therefore, to guard your heart. So now he speaks in similar terms of the eye. I mean, to think about a blind man walking the city streets. I was watching a rerun of Frasier this past week uh, where um, the, the main character walks into a, a nursing home and he's, he's, he ends up talking to James Earl Jones, you know, the guy who plays the, the voice of Darth Vader from old, and he plays an old blind man in this nursing home. And uh, as the main character, Frasier Crane, is on his way out the, the door, he turns to James Earl Jones and says, do you want me to turn the light on or off? James Earl Jones says, well, surprise me because he's blind. He doesn't know one way or another. You, know, you think of a blind man walking the streets by day, and you think, well, what worry is there? It's bright out, but it's of no use to a man whose vision is clouded. It's no good to a man who is devoid of vision. You think of the diseased eye, one who has perhaps glaucoma. It hinders the body's movement. It subjects him to constant danger. There might be things laid out before him that he is not able to see because of his impaired vision. Well, our Savior, as we'll look at next week, will compare anxiety to a form of what we might call spiritual glaucoma. It darkens one's perspective on the world around him. Well, here, Jesus uses that image and says that the eye is what lights the way. The eye is the lamp of the body. If you have an eye that is unclouded, it is so easy to walk about. But if the eye is dark, how great is the darkness? For a man born blind, the light does him no good unless he can see. Here, the imagery that our Savior gives is that it is the eye that lights the way. And it's not just any eye, but he speaks of the healthy eye. If you could see where you're going, you have nothing to fear. But the more and more your vision is clouded, the more vulnerable you become. The idea here that Jesus has when he speaks of the healthy eye is to have an eye that is undivided, that is focused, that is not clouded or suffering from double vision or tunnel vision. Our Savior says, make sure your eye is healthy. It is of single purpose that it remain undivided. J.C. Ryland, speaking on this, says, singleness of purpose is one of the great secrets of spiritual prosperity. Unless our hearts are so ordered, everything will be in confusion. Jesus is speaking about the heart that remains undivided, that heart that has its eyes fixed on those treasures that will not be lost or corrupted. That is its full, that is its focus, its laser focus. It's not one that is easily distracted, suffering from a kind of spiritual form of ADHD but one who continues to set his eyes on those treasures, those heavenly rewards that our Savior has promised. Singleness of purpose, singleness, clarity of vision of the great joys that are set before the people of God. You know, in, these, in verses 19 to 21, Jesus is saying your treasure can only be found in one of two places, on earth or in heaven. Well, here in verses 22 to 23, what Jesus is getting at is you, you, you need to set your focus on only one of these. Don't try to have your eggs, you know, uh, all your ducks in a row, all your eggs in a basket. I don't know. 
Don't try to split the difference or mix metaphors like I'm doing. To try to keep our sights set on both is to possess what James calls double-mindedness. It clouds your vision to try to think you can have the things of earth and the things of heaven as well as your ultimate pursuits. It creates a duplicity with mixed motives where one tries to, as we might say, hedge your bets. And it renders a man unstable in all of his ways. The one who says, yeah, and gives lip service to the things of heaven, but really wants the things of earth. Isn't that the problem with the prosperity gospel? Trying to use Christ as some type of uh, supernatural Santa Claus to give us the things in our treasures now. How antithetical that is to the Scripture's teaching. That's why we had Psalm 73 read earlier this morning. Here the psalmist looks and, and sees the men... Uh, whose, whose lot is found solely in the things of this life. And they, they are so healthy, they are so prosperous, and the psalmist becomes so jealous of their prosperity. He says, until I considered their end. Because the treasures that they have are going to the grave with them. And so the psalmist, in contemplating his treasure recognizes that he might not have much in this life, beset with sickness and infirmity, doubts, struggles, envy. Nevertheless, he takes a step back and he reflects on his inheritance. He says, who do I have in heaven or on earth besides the Lord God Almighty? He is my inheritance. He is my treasure. He is my exceedingly great reward. When Jesus speaks of the, 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 the eye being a lamp and a light, He's speaking of the undivided focus that our hearts ought to have. We are unable to straddle these two worlds, both heaven and earth. Even as pilgrims passing through this fading wilderness, we are called to set our minds not on the things of earth, but the things that are in heaven. If you have been raised with Christ, Paul writes, seek those things which are above. Because above is where our greatest treasure resides. Christ himself, who himself is our life. For those of us who struggle with double-mindedness, where we want to have one foot in this world and one foot in the next, we are called to purify our hearts that we might have our hearts set squarely on the things above and so walk through this world with simplicity of purpose. Guard your heart. Let your eye remain undivided. Do not let it be divided. That leads us to our final point here where our Savior continues to drive home this point. He says, don't be deceived. It's impossible to serve two rival lords. You cannot pursue both the treasures of heaven and the treasures on earth simultaneously. It is either one or the other. Which will it be? If the eye ought to be single... The affections should be as well. They ought not be divided. 
what our Savior is getting at is there is an exclusivity to the call of the Christian life. That we are to love the Lord our God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength to such a way that all other loves pale in comparison. That's why Jesus says, if any man does not hate mother, father, sister, husband, wife, can't be my disciple. The Lord takes top priority. There is no close second. There is no tie for first place. There is a call an exclusive call to love the Lord and to make Him our treasure, that we might love Him with our whole heart, not a divided heart. In any other context, a servant who would try to uh, serve two rival masters is called a traitor or a spy. You think of Edmund Pevensey, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, who claimed to serve Aslan, but secretly was serving the White Witch until his deeds were exposed. (coughs) Or in American history, you think of Benedict Arnold, the American revolutionary soldier who served the royal crown until he was exposed for the fraud that he was. It is not possible to carry that illustration to serve the American revolutionary context, both the American government and the British crown. It is one or the other. In the American Civil War, it was not possible to serve both the northern government and the southern confederate government. It is one or the other. When Elijah stands atop the peak of Mount Carmel, as he opposes the false prophets of Baal, Elijah turns to the people of God and says, why are you stuck straddling between two different opinions as men divided? If God is true, then serve him. If Baal is true, then serve him. You cannot serve both. Here, the Lord your God describes himself as a jealous God. Him whose name is jealous, Exodus chapter 34. Who is a consuming fire, who will not share your heart with the rest of the world. Where is your ultimate treasure? What is your treasure? Modern translations say you cannot serve both God and money. It's a fair translation, but the word there for for money, mammon, includes possessions as well. What is of greater value to you? The things in your man cave or your savings account or is it the treasures above? And yet notice the distinction that Christ gives here of what the two different treasures are. It is either earthly possessions or it is God himself. What our Savior is getting at here is that our heavenly treasure is not simply the benefits of redemption. It is the great benefactor who gives us those benefits. As the old great hymn goes, and the sands of time are sinking, the, eye, the, the bride eyes not her garment on her great wedding day, but she eyes her dear bridegroom's face. 
I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace, not at the crown that he gives, but on his pierced hand. For the Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. When we speak of our treasures in heaven, we ought not envision a heaven apart from Christ. There is no heaven apart from Christ. Christ, A heaven without Christ is nothing less than hell. Christ is our heaven. Christ is our treasure. Christ is our chief end and our chief reward. He is our inheritance, as we are His, not the things of this earth. Christ is our highest good. He is our greatest joy. He is our chief end. He is our only comfort in life and death. And our Savior says that if you seek Him, He will surely give it to you. Ask, seek, and knock for anyone who asks, will not the Lord certainly give to you His precious Spirit? Such is His great promise. You might spend your entire life seeking sunken Spanish treasure and never find a single gold doubloon. But our Savior promises this, if you seek Him truly, He will be found. And He will be yours. To give you solid joys and lasting treasures that none but Zion's children know. Here we see in this passage before us three distinct features where Jesus focuses on the heart, the eyes, and as it were, the hands of the servant. Something that encapsulates the whole person, the whole body that is given over and devoted to this one particular treasure. But what treasure will that be? Will it be the treasure that is found here on earth that will die with you? That you will not be able to take with you beyond the grave? Or is that treasure something that is found in heaven? More pointedly, is that treasure someone who is found in heaven? As Paul himself says, whatever gains I've made compared to Christ, they are garbage. Nothing compares to the surpassing surpassing worth of knowing Christ, to be found in Him, having received a treasure that I can never earn, a treasure of eternal life, in communion with the God of all life. Do we use God as a means to some other end, some type of lucky rabbit's foot to acquire money, sex, power, financial stability, notoriety, Or is He our chief end and treasure? Is He our exceedingly great reward? Consider Moses, the adopted son of the richest, most powerful man on earth. Here's a man who had it all, and Hebrews says that he considered partaking in the humiliation of Christ to be of greater value than all the treasures of Egypt because he was looking forward to the reward. To be devoted to God. To be God's treasured possession. That He might be ours. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. His desire for me, His military banners that wave over me, that guard and cherish me, is love. Our treasure is Christ Himself who reigns on high. He is our life, and He grants these solid joys and lasting treasures. Exhortation this morning is to taste and see once more that He is good. But not only that He is good, He is the source of all goodness itself, for He is 
consummate goodness. And the only treasure worth pursuing. Let's pray. And gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank You for Your Word and we pray that You would train our hearts to set our affections not on the things of this earth, but on the One who is the possessor of heaven and earth, who gives all that we need for life and godliness, but who has given us Himself as our chief end and our chief joy. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.